Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. Angela Duckworth's lengthy resume tells you a few things about her, where she attended school, what role she held throughout her career, awards she received, and publications she contributed to. It also tells you that she's naturally curious and motivated, and that these traits have led her to flourish in her extensive career as a psychologist. But the work she does today wasn't realized overnight. Following her junior year in college, Duckworth taught summer enrichment courses to middle school students from disadvantaged backgrounds. This eye-opening experience was her first glimpse into what she would later call grit. After her graduation from Harvard, Duckworth worked as a McKinsey management consultant. She quit this prestigious job to return to teaching. As a math and science teacher at the public schools in New York City, San Francisco, and Philadelphia, Duckworth saw her most adept students fall behind their peers who were less likely to be coined as naturals in the subject. This mystery intrigued Duckworth and she decided to pursue psychology and discovered her life goal of using psychological science to help kids thrive. Duckworth's best-selling book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, highlights her research into the characteristics of high-achieving individuals. Take a look at the March-April issue of the Bulletin, PSPA's award-winning magazine, which is also available publicly at PSPA.org. There you'll find a book review covering the book. Welcome, Angela. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So to start with, can you provide a brief explanation of your research? And, and then also, how do you define grit? I am someone who came to her research from classroom teaching. I was a middle school and high school math teacher for several years in public schools, and I was frustrated that I wasn't always able to motivate my students to put in the effort that I knew was required to, to learn the material and to get better at math. And I think the research that I do today is very much, um, you know, motivated by the question, you know, what is the psychology of effort? Why do some kids keep trying when they're frustrated or they get get a problem wrong? And why do other kids give up? Mm -hmm. And um, relatedly, why do kids sometimes get all their homework done and then sometimes end up spending the whole night on social media? So effort in the face of obstacles, effort in the face of tempting distractions. I would call these, you know, the psychology of grit and self-control, but really I'm, I'm trying to unpack effort so that we can, you know, do better than I did as a teacher, which is I would just, you know, tell my kids like, oh, you, know, you should work harder. And, and honestly, that was like not the most insightful thing to say, and it didn't help very much. Mm, yeah. So in your book, you talk about the importance of interest discovery, and you go on to explain that children have a greater likelihood of thriving in their interests with a strong support system of parents, teachers, coaches, peers. So regarding the interest discovery process, you give advice that play comes before hard work. In the public education system, how do you think teachers and parents can help children discover their interests while also meeting the parameters of established curriculum? I'll begin by saying that I think interest is central to, to human motivation. I mean, any of us who you know, understand what it's like to be bored, you know, sitting in a lecture, having to do something you really, really, really don't want to do. We all know what it's like to not be at our best um, because we're not engaged. I don't mean to imply that, you know, kids should be having fun all the time. I mean, it would be naive for me to say that 
kids uh, will always be intrinsically motivated at all times of day and that nothing will ever require a little bit of self-control or work ethic. But in terms of what kids grow up to be, uh, in terms of their careers, in terms of their college majors, you know, I think it's so important that uh, throughout their K-12 experience, we've planted the seeds so that they can, you know, find a career that is intrinsically enjoyable much of the day, if not all of the day. And my own um, perspective on this is that, you know, some kids will be very fortunate in that they will discover those interests in, you know, French class, in algebra, in English language arts, and things that are part of the traditional academic curriculum. But I think one of the most common ways to develop your interest is outside of the academic classes, so extracurricular activities. You know, many people discover and develop an interest in leadership and team building through sports. Or, you know, maybe your interest in writing is actually something which is piqued more by, you know, working on the school newspaper than the assignments that you're doing for each language arts class. So I I think in general, the American school system and, you know, most other school systems, frankly, you know, we have a long way to go before we can say like, hey, we're optimally set up to help all students discover and develop their interests. Mm-hmm. So in, in this country, at least, we expect students to think about and sort of decide upon a potential career path around the age of 17 or 18 you know, as they are graduating from high school. This is obviously a young age and also a time of uncertainty. So what advice would you give to young adults who feel they don't have direction at this stage of life? They don't know, you know what they want to pursue or how to reach even the end goal. This is such a great question. In fact, it's the question that's occupying me um, centrally as a scientist today. You know, what what advice do we have based on science for you know how to navigate those waters? And I uh, spent, I guess, a good decade between graduating from college to figuring out I wanted to become a psychologist. And if you add the four years that I was in college, also not knowing you know what I would eventually end up doing, well, that's you know, 14 years of not knowing. Um, Absolutely. And and I think my first message would be empathy. I mean, I really, really feel for the young people who, um, they're already hard workers and they're they're resilient, but they don't necessarily know what they're working for. And I I personally found it kind of a torturous, angst-ridden, uncomfortable stage of life. I cried a lot. Um, I got very pessimistic at times that I would ever find my way. In terms of, you know, ways that you can shorten that period of wandering from hopefully not 14 years to, you know, something a little shorter, I think the thing that students need to do is try stuff out. I, I sometimes tell my own students, I tell them that interests are like foods. You know, you don't really know if you'll like it or not until you actually experience it. I mean, I can tell you what uh, the durian fruit tastes like, but unless you taste it, you won't know. Mm-hmm. And and that means that you have to get out of your head and get out of the classroom and really try things. I mean, if you think you might want to be a veterinarian, you know, figure out a way to like, spend a, an afternoon shadowing a veterinarian. I mean, you'll know much more at the end of that afternoon than you did before. And and I think likewise, and having conversations with people who are doing things that are related to what you think you might want to do, the closer you can get to actual experience, I think the better. And if I had spent more time experimenting, trying out, you know, different careers when I was in high school and during my college years, I think I might have come to the same decision, but I, I think I would have come to it uh, sooner. And that that really honestly would have been better for me. Yeah. 
The concept of deliberate practice is prevalent in your book. Um, can you tell us what that is? Talk, talk to us about deliberate practice and then also about learning from mistakes and, and co- kind of encouraging learning from mistakes and, and how that can help students discover their passion. There is a literature in, in science on experts, so Olympic athletes and virtuoso uh, musicians and you know Nobel Prize winning scientists. And the question that's asked in this scientific research is what makes these experts different from the rest of us? One very important difference is the way they practice. And the way they practice is often called deliberate practice, and it has a a few features that, you know, as I rattle them off, you can think of how students often spend their time doing homework or studying, and you can see the contrast. So one feature of deliberate practice is that there's a very specific learning goal um, in mind at the beginning of practice. And you might say, well, you know, students get assigned homework and that's the learning goal. But as a math teacher, if I assign, you know, do the problems on page 372, uh, the evens, that is not a learning goal. That's just, oh, I have to do that. But but maybe the learning goal is to really master converting fractions to decimals, right? That's the learning goal. So, so I think that when we assign homework or we ask students to do projects in school, we should make sure that they can say back to us, What's the learning goal? What, what's the point um, mm-hmm. of, of this thing I'm about to do? And if you do that, you're, you're practicing a little bit more like an expert. The second thing that experts do is they practice with full concentration. So they're not multitasking. And I have two daughters at home. They are you know, proud students of the Philadelphia Public Schools. Mm-hmm. They're learning better and better, I think, how to study without distractions. When I would come home, you know, when they were in younger grades and they're, they're junior and senior now, but, you know, earlier in their academic careers, you know, I'd come home, there's like music playing and they're texting and they're Snapchatting, <laughs> but also somehow doing their homework. Yeah. That's the opposite of the way experts practice. So um, the second recommendation is to help students understand that the psychology of attention is that you cannot divide it without real compromise to your learning. And the final element I'll just um, say is so important, I think we could do a better job of as educators, and I include myself here, is that as educators, teachers, um, we can do a better job providing feedback. So deliberate practice has the feature of um, usually immediate feedback that's very clear so that the learner can immediately implement uh, changes and get at it again. And, And when I think of how long it took me to get back quizzes and tests or to grade homework, or you can think of, you know, other subjects, you know, how long does it take for a student to get their writing back if they're getting feedback? You know, that longer the cycle time and the less specific that feedback, the less we are approximating deliberate practice, the practice of world-class experts. Well, that's, that's interesting because I have heard even my own daughter say, oh, this teacher returns feedback very quickly, or this one I have to wait a little bit for. <laughs> so that, that's interesting, but that makes a ton of sense. In Chapter 9, Hope, you, you stress the importance of a growth mindset, and especially for students who are coming from a disadvantaged background. How important do you think a growth mindset is to overcoming adversity? A growth mindset is a belief that abilities can change. And it has been studied mostly with the idea that your intelligence can change. I'm sure students can tell you that intelligence isn't the only ability they care about. They might care about their athletic ability or their musical ability uh, or their leadership ability. But I do think that when you are a student and you're, you know, seven, eight, nine, you're 15, you're 16, you know, a lot of um, your time you're wondering how smart you are. And so this research from Carol Dweck at Stanford showing that the belief that intelligence 
can change, that it's not fixed is so important. I think it's important for kids. I think it's important for adults. I think many of us walk around and have, you know, fixed mindset about how smart we are. And that discourages us from trying new things that are going to require failure. And that is because we don't want to look dumb, right? Mm -hmm. If, If intelligence can't be changed, God forbid, we, you know, we don't have enough of it. So I, I think of it as something that's required in life, you know, no matter how old you are. And also, honestly, no matter what your socioeconomic background is as well, though um, we might say you know, one group of kids we especially worry about or another group we, we should emphasize this more, but it's, it's a universal. And in my research with Carol, we have found in data that we collect on adolescents that students who have more of a growth mindset are the ones who are more resilient and harder working. And we follow students over time. This is actually uh, new data that I've, I've collected recently. And you can see this virtuous cycle where students who have a growth mindset, and then you come back and you see like, what are they doing? Well, those are the students who are working hard. But if you come back a third time, it's the students who are working hard who increase in their growth mindset and so on and so forth. So I think it's a virtuous cycle to begin hopefully as early as possible in schooling. Mm-hmm. Are there some specific ways that parents and teachers can help students develop this mindset? One very surprising finding in terms of this growth mindset literature came from um, a student who was a postdoctoral fellow with me. Her name is Kyla Hamovitz. She did her PhD with Carol at Stanford. And her hypothesis was really straightforward, which is that if you have a teacher or a parent who has a growth mindset, then you'll automatically have a student or a kid who has a mm-hmm. growth mindset as well. And, you know, that made all the sense in the world. Like, where else would their beliefs come from? They must come directly from their parents and their teachers' beliefs. But she found that um, in many of her data sets, there was no relationship. And after many more years of digging and collecting more data, what she discovered is that the teachers' mindsets matter and the parents' mindsets matter, but it's a little more directly about how the parents and the teachers behave around failure. It's all well and good, and we should hope that teachers and parents believe that abilities can change, but maybe even more relevant to how students grow up and what they think of themselves is how you respond when a student gets a problem wrong. Or, you know, you're you're doing a class discussion, a problem on the board maybe, and the student can't produce the right answer. They get a bad grade, right? You mm-hmm. know, the semester didn't go well. What is the body language that we use? What are the words that come out of our mouths? Like, how do we signal to students that failure is part of learning and not diagnostic, that they're unable to do something in the future? And I think that this message is very clear then for for teachers and parents, and that is that every time a child fails is an opportunity to strengthen their growth mindset by modeling for them and being very clear that, you know, failure is sometimes even a good sign, right? Because it means you tried to do something that you can't yet do, which means that you were challenging yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, there is information there that, you know, we can all use so that the next opportunity, maybe we could do a little better. That's, I think what you said is just such a strong message. And it goes back to even what we were talking about with learning from mistakes and, and how that is a necessary part of growth. Exactly. And it's something that, you know, in um, news research, I mean, I mean new, it's being published in 2020, even 2019. The psychology of mistake making is so interesting because even successful adults don't easily learn from mistakes. I mean, there's a kind of fear 
response of, you know, an anxiety about mistake making that kind of crowds out learning sometimes. And mm-hmm. I think it's an ongoing battle for all of us to have a healthy attitude toward failure and mistake making. Mm-hmm. And one developmental psychologist I know recommends that, you know, this is somebody who specializes in like three and four year olds, but I think it's good advice for even high school teachers, which is that you should maybe deliberately make mistakes and then um, smile, like plan them, you know, mm-hmm. like plan to make a mistake, smile, say something like, well, there I go. Like I made a mistake. And then model the kind of it's okay response. I have a great fondness for an AP economics teacher and he's, uh, you know, in Baltimore and he has a little thing on the chalkboard on the top right. His last name is Bressler. His name is Phil Bressler. It's called Bressler's Blunders. And um, he, he gets a point to the class every time he makes a mistake. And then when they get to a certain number of points, they have a pizza party. And uh-huh. it's just a way of like having fun with this, you know, idea of mistake making. So I think there are all kinds of creative ways that we can make it clear to students that, um, you know, it's part of life. Yeah, that's great. That's a great anecdotal story. So students, especially K through 12, you know, that stage of life spend so much of their time and their lives at school. And towards the end of your book, you talk about how culture shapes who we are, and we know that certainly in the workplace that we talk a lot about corporate culture. For students, their district is a culture that they are a big part of. For those of our audience, and also the broader public audience who are involved in their community and in their district leadership, how do you think a culture of grit can be developed or incorporated into the school environment? In one study that I did with a um, now professor, she was a a postdoctoral fellow with me for a couple of years. Her name is Annie Park. In one study, we looked at school culture and we looked to see, you know, what would determine increases in students' grit and then what effect those increases or decreases in grit would have on objectively measured student achievement like grades. And we found that there were certain school cultures that were more conducive to increases in grit and then uh, in turn objective measures of academic achievement. And primarily what we found would have been predicted by Carol Dweck and her work on growth mindset, which is that cultures that are about change and growth and learning were more conducive to grit building than cultures that were about rank ordering students from best to worst, really kind of sending the signal that what you're here in school to do is to sort of show off how smart you are, not to develop. And I am sorry to say that I have seen classrooms that are, you know, like this, where there's a lot of energy about like the academic awards that only a handful of students get. Or I've been in classrooms or school auditoriums where stand up if you're in this honor society, stand up if you're in that. And then, you know, the students who are still sitting down, I always thought like, what what goes through their heads when they are sitting there? It's shameful. Mm -hmm. Um, Why spend that energy trying to rank order kids? Why not emphasize that what you're here in school to do is to compare yourself not to other peers, but to compare yourself to what you were yesterday? and to what you would hope to be tomorrow. And that's the um, shift in the perspective that I, you know, I think this culture work suggests is that we need a culture that in so many ways, and every principal and teacher knows that schools are cultural entities, just like a country is a cultural, you know, unit, mm-hmm. a classroom and a school, you know, you wear certain colors, you say certain things, there are certain rituals, there are values, and they can be reinforced formally and informally. But I, I think being intentional about that, what kind of culture are we building are we showing kids that learning is the name of the game or are we inadvertently sending a different message? I think that's uh, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. So 
Can you tell us uh, a little bit about where your research has led you and specifically about the work that you're doing with the Character Lab? About seven years ago, I started a nonprofit called Character Lab with two educators named Dave and Dominic. Dave Levin was working with the almost 100% economically disadvantaged students in New York. And then Dominic was the headmaster of one of the most elite private schools in New York. So in some ways they were working on different ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And what they both realized, and I did as well as a scientist, is that really kids are more alike than they are different. And the common thing that all kids need to learn is character. And I'll, I'll hasten to just explain what I mean by character, because I think it's a word that is used differently by different people. I use it very broadly, the same way I think Martin Luther King and Aristotle used the word character, also Maria Montessori. And that is, you know, everything that a, a child needs to learn and master in order to lead a life that is good for other people and good for themselves. So yes, honesty and kindness, but also curiosity and creativity and also grit and self-control and growth mindset. And also, you know, the list goes on, you know, sense of humor and appreciation for beauty, proactivity, forgiveness, judgment. So character is a lot. And I think some educators would prefer the term social emotional learning. And that's fine with me. I don't, I don't need everyone to use the word character, but the nonprofit that we started advances scientific insight that build character and help kids thrive. So we run research studies for people like Carol Dweck in schools, some district schools, some charter schools, some independent and parochial schools. We run the studies for these scientists, but we also translate those scientific discoveries into plain English on characterlab.org. And then finally, we really hope that we can benefit parents and teachers by really giving them practical advice. So here's what the discovery is. Here it is without all the jargon in plain English so you can understand it. But here's some really practical recommendations about how you can use that insight to help your own children, your own students thrive. Great. This was all such fantastic information. And I know just scratching the surface. And so where can our listeners, whether it be school leadership or parents or educators, where can they find more about your research and the work in this area and, and it's what you've covered in the book? If you go to characterlab.org, you can sign up for an email newsletter that I send out. It's something like 60 seconds of scientific advice turned into actionable recommendations for, mm-hmm. for, for parents and teachers. I nice. call it the tip of the week, but you can sign up at characterlab.org. Okay. And we also have playbooks written by leading scientists on things like growth mindset or curiosity for, for parents or teachers who say, you know, I want to know more about this, but I want something written specifically for me. And I, I want it to be authoritative. I want to make sure that what I'm reading, and I don't have a lot of time, is coming to me really directly from the world-class experts in the domain. And so we have all of that there. It's completely free. We have no advertising. We are 100% supported by philanthropy from foundations like the Gates Foundation and also uh, very generous individuals. Wow. That is awesome that that's available at no cost. Thank you so much for being with us. This was informative and interesting. Really, thank you for joining us on this podcast episode. Thank you. And I just want to say I love that you have this podcast. It's um, it's a wonderful thing, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Great. Thank you. Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. This episode is brought to you in part by Siemens Industry and Edgenuity, 
Visit our website at keyedradio.org for more information on today's discussion and for past episodes covering a wide range of education topics. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a show. If you like what you hear, please rate and review or share the show with a friend or colleague. Follow Keystone Education Radio and PSBA on social media. This is Annette Stevenson saying thank you for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.